Unless you've been living under a rock, you're probably pretty aware of this year's presidential election. One could make the argument that this is the most polarized, contentious, unorthodox campaign in history. For some teachers, politics is forbidden territory, particularly in an election like this one. Too controversial to touch. But for others, like Janelle Bent and Chris Sloan, our guests tonight, the election represents an opportunity to help kids navigate all the rhetoric, to understand how they can become active, knowledgeable participants in our democracy, and to help them sort through the information and misinformation. Kristen and Janelle want to help young people figure out what matters to them and how the election relates, ultimately, ultimately with the goal of giving their students the tools to participate, either by voting or engaging meaningfully in other ways. How do Kristen and Janelle do it? I have to admit, I'm as curious as you are. I'm Paul O, and I'm your host this week for Teach Talks, the podcast from your friends and colleagues at Teaching Channel. Janelle and Chris, why don't you introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Janelle Bentz. Um, I teach at a new tech school in Coppell, Texas. Um, I teach English 1 to freshmen, and I'm in a blended humanities class called Global Issues. So I teach in the same classroom with a facilitator of uh, world geography, AP Human Geography. My name is Chris Sloan, and I teach high school English and media at Judge Memorial in Salt Lake City, Utah. So, Chris, let's start with you. What are you focusing on and doing with your kids during this particular election? And is it different from what you've done in the past, given the current climate? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of talk about how polarizing things are, are getting. And, you know, this talk has been going on for a few elections now. So I've been teaching elections in my English class for, you know, a couple decades anyway. And, uh, you know, so it seems to be the trend that, uh, you know, it's, it's getting less civil as we go and more polarized. So, I mean, that in, hasn't changed, so to speak. I think it's kind of a trend. But I think what I'm seeing is information overload on my students and, and trying to help them see through that is kind of something that I've been focusing on. Um, and, you know, I, I have to go back to an anecdote that I have with um, – I was ta I've talked to different English language arts teachers from around the country, and on two different occasions in two different situations, one person a uh, supporter of Hillary Clinton, another person supporter of Donald Trump, they both said that they were not going to talk about politics this year in their classroom. And I thought that was a shame because I think it's a missed opportunity for us to teach a lot of important things to students, and, and we don't want to be afraid to do that. We want to do it well, though. So um, one book that I've um, been influenced by lately is called The Political Classroom, Evidence and Ethics in Democratic Education. And, you know, the authors remind us that political conflict is a normal part of civic life. And I think that's one thing that my students have to understand early on, because sometimes they're shocked by the tenor of, you know, political discussions when they have them. They're shocked by, you know, just how passionate sometimes people can feel about it, and that throws them off a little bit. Um, so, you know, I try to impress upon them that that's just the way it is. If you're going to live a civic life, you're going to deal with political conflict. And, and so what I said to the teachers that talked about not wanting to introduce uh, politics in the classroom, and these are English language arts teachers, um, I think this comes from the book, too, that there's an emphasis on you should share your views as opposed to pushing your views. So if you feel like sharing your views, these authors found, 
like those classrooms were successful. You don't have to share your views, but they found that in their study that classrooms were not successful when teachers pushed their views on, uh, on the students. The students sensed that and suddenly the dynamics kind of shut down. So, I mean, that's what I try to do is I try to uh, emphasize that it's a normal part of civic life. And when I share my views, which is really not very often, I let my students to make up their own mind. Um, I definitely don't push my views on them. Um, so, oops, there's uh, an example of a book that I use is called Unspun. Um, Unspun, Finding Facts in a World of Disinformation. That's by the people who do uh, factcheck.org, which is a very nice uh, resource for classroom teachers. So um, we want to look at language. So I teach AP English Language and Composition. That's one of the classes I teach. And we want to look at political language and, and try to check out spin. Um, and so one example just that I'll use from the debate the other night, so the first debate between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton took place two days ago, and there was this issue about stop and frisk and is it effective or not. And um, they both had competing claims. So Donald Trump said murders are up in New York City since uh, stop and frisk policies were ended. Hillary Clinton said crime, including murders, is down in New York City since stop and frisk uh, has been implemented. So, you know, we looked at the facts. You know, we looked at factcheck.org and found that actually both were right if you read their statements literally. So, um, for example, murders in 2013 were 335. Uh, in 2014, they went down to 333. 2015, they went to 352, which was the third lowest level murder rate in New York City since they've been keeping those records. And then this year, it's projected to be 345. All murders are terrible things, but it's true that it's there's a slight, slight, statistically slight uptick. And then Hillary Clinton was right when she said crime, including murders, are down. And because New York City is on track to have the having the lowest uh, overall crime rate on record this year. So both candidates were correct. So then I said to the students, those are the facts. You decide whether stop and frisk is an effective technique or not. And so that's what I mean about I don't push my uh, politics on them, but let's look at some facts and then deliberate. And I think that's really the, the key that I'm trying to get across is I'm trying to teach the skill of deliberation. So look at facts, think about the issues, research the issues, and then start to make up your mind. Uh, the next step for me is I think it's important for students to create their own media, uh, whether it's in their school press or Janelle and I are both involved in a thing called uh, KQED Do Now which is where students discuss uh, timely political issues with youth from around the country through KQED. And we're also involved in a thing called PBS NewsHour Student Reporting Labs, where we also try to tell stories that matter to um, youth around the country. So I think it's important to tell those stories. And then lastly, what I would say is it's also really important for people to uh, discuss 
those stories and discuss their thinking with youth around the country. And to that end, I'll share one example. Um, I have my students participate in discussions, sometimes they're political, on a thing called YouthVoices.Live, which is a network of teachers and classrooms um, through the National Writing Project and um, connecting classrooms uh, from, with, from teachers from around the country. So I mean, those are some the things I'm trying to do uh, this election season. Let me just ask a quick follow-up, uh, Chris. So that all sounds like amazing work. And I'm wondering, is there some piece of that, or is it the, the, the suite of these opportunities? Uh, what, what is it that, that makes the election relevant for your students from among what you just described? Well, um, you know, I teach AP English language, so the, the one class I'm thinking of, uh, and another writer that we'll study pretty carefully is George Orwell. And one of the things that's a key takeaway there is that language and how we use it is power. And so I want students to understand that their voices matter and that they need to be able to decode the language of other people so that they themselves have power and agency. That's cool. And, and, that, uh, and your students gravitate towards that and they... They, uh, they understand that concept and, and that appeals to them? Yeah, I think so because I've noticed every election, my students, and not just mine, I'm talking about students in this network of, uh, in this community called Youth Voices. I've noticed every election, the students' civil, civic debate is more fact-based and more deliberative than the adults' conversations that I see. That's fantastic. That's awesome. Well, let's turn now to Janelle. And Janelle, you're in a different situation working with uh, first-year students in high school. So how do you make an election like this relevant for your students who, I believe, for the most part, are too young to vote? Yeah, I think that that's, um, even though they're not ready to vote, the trick is going to be to be able to um, really help them find their relevance and their voice and why honing the skills to kind of prepare for that is going to be important. Um, sorry, we have a bajillion learners who keep coming in. Uh, but I think that for our kids, what the pieces that are going to be the most important, kind of as um, Chris said, is really focusing on skills that they need to have to participate in discourse and not, not necessarily get caught up in all the rhetoric. To be able to divide what is fact and logical argumentation versus what is, um, what is actually a, an argument that can be sustained with logic and research. Um, so for example, one of the first things that we did was we write thesis statements, um, and that's, I know that's a skill that everyone should have, but it's, it makes it more meaningful to them when it's something, a civically engaged topic. So, uh, for example, we were writing about um, why it would be important for kids to know and be informed about the election, 
and kind of how to have a main idea, a thesis, and give us an example, um, kind of like as their backup or their research or evidence. And we got into a discussion about the civic discourse and what it was and why it's important. And the kids almost didn't know what civic discourse was. They almost didn't know, you know, the difference between rhetoric, getting caught up in the rhetoric and the, um, the language for shock and fear and all that versus what civic discourse was. So we kind of had to get to the heart of what it was, where we could find it, where it's lacking, what media um, is doing, some media. Um, and that in and of itself was interesting because you could kind of see what is valued um, in the different arenas of their life, what is valued in their personal life and social media, what is valued when they are talking about civics and, and more politically um, charged topics, and what is valued in I will say their quasi-professional um, life because it's kind of the first time where they've had to segment their digital footprint um, because we are having these discussions and we are saying, hey, you know, we need to make sure that uh, you're representing yourself w well and we kind of start with brand new social media uh, profiles and such so they can create themselves from a different point of view. Um, that being said, I think it's, I agree with Chris when he says that some of the most powerful work, whether it be writing, media making, et cetera, because um, writing can either be a final product of the research and the exploration of creating an argument, or it can be part of the process and maybe the media is more of the final product. Um, regardless, writing, is a key, writing and research is an important, important um, step in the process. But since it is, in a, it is hinged on making an argument in a civic topic, I find that that is where some of the most powerful work comes. But I think it's also because, as Chris says, we seek out audiences like Do Now, like PBS NewsHour, um, like Letters to Next President, where our learners will have a wider audience. It's more authentic to them. Um, I'm also involved in working on um, a civically engaged writing analysis continuum, which is exciting because it's a, a tool that actually seeks to define what we value in civically engaged writing um, and actually try to use this rubric per se, but as a guide to help develop those skills in writing. Um, in civically engaged topics. Um, I agree with Chris also that it's important not to push your political views. And a lot of times it's also important to tell your learners and have that discussion with learners of how the various ways to use social media, for example, um, Twitter. Um, we use Twitter as an educational tool to kind of push out things that may have been written correctly if a if an argument or a thesis is stated correctly with, um, you know, a link to evidence or whatever, uh, we might, might push that out. And it may or may not agree with our personal view, but from a skill standpoint, it's exactly what we're seeking when we are creating these 
civic discussions. Um, because without that idea of having a sound argument, without that idea of having a thesis, it's easy to get caught up in heated rhetoric and forget the facts and things like that behind. Um, so we kind of use Twitter as facilitators. We kind of use Twitter in different ways um, for different contexts, and we have to also teach that. Um, so, it's a, so it sounds like, well, so first of all, yeah, yeah first of all, uh, I should just say that um, you've given me a lot to think about here in terms of how you're approaching uh, teaching your students about uh, not just the election, but about civic discourse generally. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have a lot of questions, um, but I'll hone in on one question, which is, I know, and I should have said this at the outset, I, I've known you and Chris for quite a long time um, as colleagues, and one thing that I know that is true about your work with your students, and you've uh, both alluded to this, is this notion of uh, creating media. And I'm wondering if you could be a little bit more specific about both what it is that you mean by having your students create media and, and why, why, why have them create media? What, what is the rationale behind that? Uh, particularly in relation, obviously, to this notion of, um, of civic engagement. Well, I think, yeah, I think that when, like when we got together as a group and we were um, exploring what civically engaged writing pieces look like, it, the most powerful piece was not a formal academic research paper. The more, most powerful piece was a piece that was done by a student, and it was outside of an academic arena. It was for a blog, and they just it was a, an issue that spoke to them, and they wrote a very powerful piece where research was clear um, and just, just very moving. Um, and that being said, I think Chris and I know the um, importance of allowing learners to speak and use a media that they know their peers will be more likely to consume. And not to say that the academic exercises of a more formal research paper are for naught because they do serve their role. And in fact, many times, like I said, it could be that they create a, an infographic. Maybe they create a piece of political art, um, a spoken word, um, a video, and maybe that is, demonstrates maybe the research they've done and they will continue on to write this formal research paper, or maybe that formal research and research paper um, ends up being a piece of media. Um, but they understand that they want to be, they can have their voices and where they can perhaps grab the most attention is what genre they are most comfortable in. And usually that's the genre, the media that they are consuming. And that's very, most often, most often than not, not that formal academic piece. Chris? Yeah, I mean, so much of what Janelle says is just, right on and um, you know I have a great deal of respect for the stuff that her students do and what she's talking about and what she teaches too um, and I, I would add to what she said that um, you know they're, to have them produce the media where they are is important too so right now we're experimenting with um, you know can we tell longer stories through Instagram for example uh, you know it's where students are and so my media students, which, 
you know, when I first started out, we were doing a thing called a, stu- a school newspaper. Um, and, you know, like the dynamics have changed a lot since that. And so how do we tell stories on different platforms where people are instead of all, or in addition to producing something that's just ours, right? So, like, you can make a video program. You know, your school can have a TV show once a day or once a week or whatever, um, and people go there to see your stuff. But there's something to be said for pushing your content into the places where a lot of people are a lot of the time. And and so having a voice in these places uh, in instead of just listening and viewing and, and watching uh, to be an active player in these uh, spaces seems like um, a valuable thing for students to learn, and they they really like doing it. I can say that. Absolutely. I, I like have that. to say that um, – oh, yeah, I was just going to add, no, please, please go um, to I think that. the greatest thing is, too, is that we see the kids doing that, and we see the kids seeing these networks that have been formally set up for them. Um, but I think that places like Youth Voices – um, really helps the learners to network and amongst themselves. So, for example, right now I'm having I have kids inside my room who are networking with other student groups who are doing um, similar work. Um, for example, like my kids have a youth action film festival, which is a film festival focused on youth creating film for um, social change. And there's another group that they're talking to that makes a magazine for that same, in that same vein. They're talking to another group in another part of the country that is working with a school in Sierra Leone um, to be able to um, help the girls there with their education and help to um, get solar power into their villages and things like that. So I think the next step is, is creating this media and then the youth organizing and offering those opportunities where they connect and create those spaces as well for themselves. So it's kind of exciting. I'm, I'm over there and I'm kind of jealous because I can't be in on it. But, yeah. Yeah, and, and I'd add to those places that uh, Janelle's talking about, you know, there's this crucial element of creating a space for uh, youth to discuss issues too. And so, like, they're mm-hmm. making the media, but then we want them to have those media creations help spur more conversation and more knowledge. Uh, and yeah. so, I, you know, it's create and con- converse. That seems to be really important because those conversations then feed their future learning and their future products. Right. I mean, it's fascinating to hear because they're actually, in essence, they're designing their own projects. Um, right now, and and I, what I see happening is I can I can definitely see them touching base and becoming their own peer revision group as well. It's like, well, that didn't work. What about this? And well, what have you done? Which projects? And it's it's fascinating because they really do kind of model the type of learning that they've done, and they'll try to model and push it out if they've had those meaningful learning experiences. So and, and so, I, so I just want to. I know, Paul, we're probably close on time, but I want to add something about what Jeanette's describing to the structure. You know, a lot of people um, don't have a lot of good things to say about formal schooling anymore, and then, like, you know, it's got to 
take place in after-school settings. But what she's describing is really like optimal learning that shows a lot of, there's a lot of choice there, but it's happening in a school structure too. You know, mm-hmm. so I think kudos. Yeah, and I was going to say, yeah. I think uh, this, this seems very much uh, aligned with what you were saying, Chris, earlier about uh, your work with Instagram in the sense that I think giving kids these networking kinds of opportunities like you're describing, Janelle, uh, it leads to the kinds of academic skills that you described. But I think it also, from a civic standpoint, really helps these young people see how they can actually take action when when they understand that there's a community that uh, exists in these spaces like Instagram that may respond to what it is that they're they're putting out there. And I think it also provides for them, it seems to me, an outlet that is more relevant to this particular digital age. It's, uh, it, it gives them an opportunity to see th- these social spaces as also a place where where actual work can happen around issues that have great significance. So I think, I think this is all yeah. amazing and sounds fantastic. And we are actually getting close to the end here, um, which makes me want to cry because I love listening to you both talk. Uh, so I'm just wondering. We'll have to do it again. A, we will definitely have to do this again. You'll have to. We'll we'll touch base with you again at the end of the year, or, or perhaps, um, I suppose, closer to the end of the election, and and just hear how things went with your students, and perhaps talk about some of the some of the the products, the artifacts that your students created, um, and for what purpose. Love to do that. So we'll get you yeah. back on. But just one last question to each of you, you know, perhaps in like just a a really brief, um, you know, if you can just encapsulate this. So what would you say to a teacher who is on the fence about engaging her students about this particular election? Well, I I mean, I would say it's schools, one of the fundamental things we do is teach literacy. And um, a lot of times students don't care about the literacy lessons that take place in school. And so I think, you know, this is one avenue for a lot of kids who do care. Uh, you know, not everybody is on fire civically. Um, but I think civic dialogue allows for, um, like, very important skills in literacy, but then also in citizenship, and really that's the heart of what schools do. Absolutely. I would also Great. add um, it would probably – be easier not to discuss the election. It would probably be easier not to discuss polarizing, potentially polarizing issues. But how do we prepare them or how do we want to change um, this world that's so filled with rhetoric or um, media that pushes out things that are based on fear? How can we expect that to change unless we do actually teach our learners and the others around us how to participate in civic discourse. And in the end, it's really, well, yeah, that could be easier, but what is right? And my teaching partner, Ms. Boyd, and I know that what is right is to challenge the kids. Um, and so far, they have risen to the occasion. Great. Well, Agreed. that's a terrific, yeah, thank you. That's a terrific way to end. So thanks, Chris and Janelle. Uh, it is always wonderful to talk with you two, and I can't wait to have you back on so that we can, like I said earlier, hear how things progress with your students and uh, really just 
perhaps examine some of the amazing artifacts I'm sure that they will create. So I hope uh, you will join us um, at the Chalks again at that point. And uh, thanks to you both, and thanks to everyone who tuned in tonight. Thank you. Thank you.